Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. So glad to be with you on this wonderful Sunday morning. Wherever you are, we're so excited that you've decided to join us at the Outpouring online. We are so appreciative of our our online audience and that you've taken time to worship with us on this uh, particular Sunday. And so what I want you to do, if you've joined us, whether it's your first time or you've been with us every week that we've been online, I want you to tell whoever's in the house with you to come sit near you and let's make this a family occasion and a family affair. If you want to share this with somebody, uh, I would encourage you to go ahead and share it with somebody who may be in need of hearing uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so to all of our first time online visitors, we just want to say welcome. And we're so excited that you will be with us on this morning. We are just as glad for you to be with us online as we would be uh, if you are with us physically. We, we want to invite you to come and join us physically once things Go back to normal. If they ever do, we would love to see you if you were ever in the Orlando area. If you would stop by and visit with us, uh, we know that you would be encouraged by it. Well, uh, my name is Pastor John. I lead the outpouring. Um, I'm the leader here, but man, there is a wonderful group of people who help us um, as a church, as a ministry. They help us to be who we are as a church. And so um, all the people that have been working behind the scenes to uh, make these online experiences better and to make sure that we uh, give you uh, a quality worship experience while you are at home. I just want to say thank you to all those people, to all of our outpouring family that we have not seen in a while. Man, we surely do miss you and we are praying that we can at some point meet again in the future. Well, I want to say this. Um, at the beginning of the year, we started a series um, called Living um, on Mission, and we were preaching through um, the book of First Peter. And so this morning, I'm going to continue through that. Um, and however, I, I do want to say this, um, that sometimes in the Bible, you get to hard passages, especially when you preach through books of the Bible. And so it will be easy to just jump around and pick out scriptures that I think would be good for the people and that I think that they would have a good response to. But one of the things that happens when you preach through a particular book of the Bible is that as a, as a preacher, it keeps you honest. But it also helps your people to learn and grow and be able to for, uh, uh, fit particular passages of the Bible throughout the storyline of scripture. And so we always want our people to be able to learn and grow and understand the Bible in its context, not just so that we can get some sort of head knowledge and be puffed up and be proud, but that we know how to live properly and we know how to see God, how to see everything in light of what we've learned about God. And it helps to shape our biblical worldview. And so without further ado, we get to one of the hard passages in the Bible, and you'll understand once we get there. So if you have a Bible with you, I would love for you to turn with us to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. So at the outset, I'll let you know um, this will probably be the Sunday that you want to grab a notepad and you want to grab a pen or you may want to take some notes in your phone on your laptop. This is one of those types of messages. And so more than preaching this morning, I think that it's 
pertinent and important that we would um, teach through some of this just so that we can deal with some of the things that we've heard before, maybe culturally concerning this particular passage. And so for the first several minutes of this message, I'm going to teach through this from a historical perspective just so that we can have a bright and good idea of how this fits into the storyline of Scripture. And so 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, here's what it says. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a God, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, God, that we've been able to gather today, Lord, that you've given us this great, wonderful opportunity, God, to study your word and to share in this together uh, today, Lord. I just pray, Father, that your son Jesus would be glorified. I pray that we would know him uh, more than we did before. I pray that we would know him and then grow in our relationship with him, God, that, that through today's message, we would grow in Christ's like conformity. And so, Father, I pray that they don't just hear the preacher, they don't just hear a personality, but I pray that they would hear what God has said through his word. And so, Father, I pray for those who are hurting, those who are struggling, those who are just kind of in a fog in life. God, I pray today that you will bring comfort and I pray that you bring clarity. I pray, God, that we would be able to see and have right perspective in light of everything that is happening in our lives. And so, Father, we thank you today. We give you glory. We give you honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My sermon title for today's message is Suffering in Silence. Suffering in Silence. Well, at the outset, I, I talked about how sometimes you get to a hard passage in Scripture, and today is one of those passages, um, an incorrect understanding of the passage that we are reading today and a few others in the New Testament have been a stumbling block for people of color for many years, particularly African American people. And so today I want to bring clarity to this idea of slavery. This passage has been a stumbling block for many of people to say, how can I follow a religion or how can I follow a God that allows for people to be enslaved? And so I, I want to say that I, I can level with you on that, but I also want to say that if you get clarity today and the stumbling block is removed, 
would that still free you up to come and follow Jesus? And so I want to bring some clarity today by starting at the beginning of the Bible. When we think about slavery, we have to look at scripture in its totality and what it has to say about slavery. And so we start in Exodus chapter 21, starting at verse 16 in Exodus 21, verse 16, it says at the outset that whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. And so we think about American slavery. We think about African people being kidnapped and brought to the Americas. But when we see Exodus 21, right at the outset, it tells us whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death. Furthermore, because biblical slavery was somewhat different than chattel slavery, where, uh, uh, where Africans were enslaved in America, uh, this type of slavery oftentimes was economic. And so when we get to Exodus and we look at Exodus 21 and we go to verse 2, it says this, that in the event that a person enslaved himself to pay off a debt, that's right, people enslaved themselves at times, the owner was obligated to let him go in the seventh year. In addition to that, the slave's family was to remain intact. Wow, do you see that? Sometimes people put themselves into slavery because back then it was economic and then in this particular context, what we see is that slavery, even in this context, was not to be in perpetuity. This meant that slavery had an end to it, and at the end of six years, in the seventh year, the person who was enslaved was supposed to go free. On top of that, what you see is that there was no breaking up of families. There was no this person being sold over here and this pe person being sold over here. When we look at the slave, look at slavery in the context of Scripture, families were to remain intact. Wow! Right out the gate, the Bible takes a blow to the idea of the Bible condoning slavery. We see that at the outset in the book of Exodus. But if you follow the storyline of scripture and you get to the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he surmounts slave trading uh, to be as, as, um, as uh, ungodly and as wicked as several other types of sin, uh, sin. And he says slave trading is actually contrary to sound teaching. Wow. And so even from the old to the new, we see that the Bible has a different idea of slavery than maybe the cultural idea of what they think about biblical slavery. Furthermore, when you look in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, when he writes uh, to the church at Corinth, there were slaves in that church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, here's what he says to slaves. He says, were you called while slave? Meaning, did you get saved? When you were a slave, here's what he says, don't let it concern you. However, but if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. Paul is telling them that if you have been a slave and you see freedom present itself, run for it. Take your opportunity to be free from your enslavement. Wow. Wow. Does that sound like a religion that, that condones Slavery, And then when we look at the book of uh, Philemon, yep, there's a book in your Bible that's one page. It's called Philemon. If you want to take the time to read one book of the Bible today, it'll take you 10 minutes to read Philemon. And in Philemon is a story about a slave owner who owns a slave called Onesimus. And Paul writes to this slave owner and appeals to, appeals to him by Christian love, letting him know, hey, don't treat your slave like a slave, but treat him like you would me. 
which means Paul wasn't the guy's slave. So Paul is saying, treat him like you would treat me. Well, if the slave owner has to treat the slave, how the slave owner would treat Paul, that means he can't treat him like a slave. Paul says, treat him like a brother. Wow. Paul is undermining, Paul seemingly is undermining this idea that slavery is okay. And then there's another passage that people get, get confused in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 where it says, slaves obey your masters. But they don't read down to verse 9 where it says, and masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their masters and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism. Let me ask a question. If we think about American enslavement of Africans, how can they have slavery if they don't threaten the slaves? And so Paul is telling the slave owners, don't threaten your slaves. Matter of fact, uh, that you both have the same father in heaven who shows no favoritism. And what Paul is saying is this, is that if you can't threaten them, then you can't enslave them. And if they're equal with you, then you can't treat them like a slave. You have to treat them like a brother. Wow. Wow. So nowhere does the Bible condone slavery, but it does seem to condemn it. The scriptures actually call for slave owners to treat their slaves with dignity and that in itself would have undermined the very institution of slavery. Well, Pastor, I need you to bring it closer to home because there were some Christians who were enslaving African people. Well, during the first 100 years of American slavery, you may not know this, slave masters were not too keen on slaves being converted to Christianity because those slave masters knew that it was likely that slaves would understand that Christianity made them equal with their masters. And so for the first 100 years, they didn't even want slaves to be converted to Christianity. But when slaves started to become converted and become proselytized into Christianity, here's what happened. They gave them a truncated, short-sighted view of the gospel. And so they kept certain parts of the gospel away from the slaves so that they could keep the slaves in, low, uh, in a lower and lesser position and use it as a means of social control. Wow. And so that does not mean... That because Africans were enslaved and learned about Christianity during the, during the time of slavery, it doesn't mean that that was, dare I say, the white man's religion. And so we must not forget, or maybe we don't know our history and realize that quite a few of the early church fathers, centuries before enslavement before Africans were enslaved, there were North African church fathers, uh, uh, Augustine, Clement, Origen, Tertullian, Athanasius, all of these men who played a huge role in shaping biblical theology that we have today. They shaped biblical theology in the early history of Christianity and they were of African descent. Wow. So you asked the question, question were, were some of the theologians that lived during the time of slavery that, 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 that when they were enslaving African people, that, that some of those theologians that you guys study today, did they own slaves? Absolutely. Absolutely. They, they own slaves. And that does not mean that the Bible was condoning it. The Bible never condones it. Just because a person uh, works at a particular uh, institution and the institution does something, that doesn't mean that that person, something is wrong with that person. Or if an institution does something right and one of their employees does something wrong, that is not an indictment on the entire uh, institution. That is an indictment on that particular person. 
And so we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So because we people of African descent were treated that way, we can put the responsibility, we can't put the responsibility of that on scripture, but the mishandling of scripture was an indictment of those people during that time. They, they forgot the command that God said to love him and to love their neighbor. So slavery in any context stands against the fact that God made all people in his image and therefore no person, Christian or otherwise, should be treated inhumanely. So maybe you're asking, so if the Bible condemns slavery, why don't the writers come out in the Bible and just say, no slavery? Here's what you need to understand. Here's, it's pivotal for understanding of this. Because the writers were not writing to institutions or governments. The writers were writing to particular people who lived in a particular context. And so slavery, slavery was extremely common in the ancient world. A quarter of the Roman Empire were enslaved people. And so when you see the Bible talking about how masters should interact with their slaves or slaves should interact with their masters, biblical instruction doesn't mean biblical approval. Biblical instruction doesn't mean biblical approval. So what is Peter's point? Peter's point, the goal was to inform the slave how to live within the institution of slavery. The same way an accountant that is a Christian should behave like a Christian even if their company has questionable investment practices. In the same way a server that is a Christian that works for a restaurant that may overcharge guests for services is still to have the character of a Christian while they at work. If you are an administrative person at a company, you can't refuse to send out a letter or you can't refuse to type of a memo just because your boss is evil. You still have a job to do. A nurse can't stop treating a patient at the hospital because they don't believe the patient should have one medication over the other. If that is what they were told to do, then they have to work within the parameters of their job. The only way an employee can refuse to do their job is if their job causes them to sin. And so, for our context today, Peter wants to address followers of Jesus on how to respond no matter what situation they find themselves in, even if it's an abusive one where they suffer. Remember, this is all grounded in what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, where he said, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. So when he starts off with how Christians are to respond to the outside world, he tells them first to submit in a certain way to those who govern in the land. But then he brings it down to the household setting that even for a Christian, it matters how you respond to life and how you conduct yourself in the household. And so for the believer, the new life in Christ had implications on how people interacted, even in the most basic of institutions at home. And here's what it says. In verse 18, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. Why would he say that if he's talking about the household? Because slaves lived with their masters. And so before he gets to how wives and husbands are, how to, are, are to interact, he's telling slaves how to interact with their masters. And so even for the Christian that was a slave, 
there was a way they were to conduct themselves while they were enslaved. The slaves had the lowest social status and the least amount of power. And so, just like any institution of slavery, that there were some good masters and there were some cruel and horrible masters. Paul does not deny that reality. The Bible ain't pie in the sky. The Bible ain't a bunch of fluff. The Bible ain't fantasy land. The Bible ain't Disney World where everything is okay and everything is cotton candy and roses. No, the Bible paints a picture of reality, but it tells us how to deal with while we're in that reality, no matter how painful it is. And for them, at times, they serve some people who are brutal and who are harsh. And so Paul doesn't deny that reality. Even with being free in Christ, it didn't mean that the Christian would be free from harsh circumstances. You need to hear that today. You are free in Christ if you are a follower of Jesus. You are free in him. But do you notice that when you got saved, it didn't change every circumstance in your life? It changed you, but it changed, didn't change some of the stuff that you were going through. And so Paul is essentially saying that you will have a hard time having integrity even in a hard environment. But it matters. It matters how you respond even in a hard environment. You may be looking for another job and you may eventually leave the job you're at. But while you are there, you are supposed to work as unto the Lord. Wow. He says, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel submission. This idea of submission, it, it, it suggests that we arrange ourselves under the authority of someone else, right? And so we are to yield to their leadership and to their authority. We, we should respect leaders. Hear this. We should respect leaders even when we don't agree with their decisions. Wow. That takes a lot of maturity. We, we, we should respect and pray for political leaders, even if we didn't vote for them, we disagree with their policies, and we doubt if they will do a good job, we still should pray for them. Wow. That, that, that takes a lot of maturity. The, the Bible never says submit to good leaders or perfect parents. The Bible just says submit to authorities. I think that's on purpose because we have this idea that every boss we work for or every parent or, or both our parents should be both should be nice and subtle and give us whatever we want whenever we ask for. But that's not the reality of life. That's not the reality of life. We don't like to submit or honor leaders unless we think they're worthy according to our own standards. But that is not the picture that the Bible paints. The Bible does not instruct us to do that. The Bible says that God puts people in position and authority. And therefore, unless they are making a sin or disobey God, we should respect them. We should respect them. That's not just for political figures. That's for police yeah, I said it. That's for teachers. That's for principals. And that's for spiritual leaders. Whoever you fall under the authority, the Bible commands you, if you are a believer, to honor and respect that authority, the authority of leadership, whether it be a parent, a spouse, a minister, a teacher, a government official, that authority is given to them by God. It's not earned. God chooses leaders. We don't. And so. That doesn't mean that if they're derelict in their responsibility, that doesn't mean that they should be abusing their power. In all cases, leaders, whether it's a parent, a teacher, a principal, a government official, they should do their best to lead wisely with the wisdom that God has given them. The caveat is this. We live in a fallen world, and sometimes we will be subordinate to ungodly or unkind leadership. But God's purposes, hear this, God's purposes are not thwarted whether the leader is good or bad. God is still in control. And when you think that God ain't sovereign when bad stuff is happening, 
You have a hopeless theology. But if I know that God is sovereign, even in my hard seasons of life, that gives me hope that I know that God will keep me. I know that God is watching. I know God is hearing my prayer. I know that nothing is out of the scope of the hand of God, that God can hear everything that I'm saying to him, that God feels my pain, that God knows what I'm going through, that God sees the beginning from the end. God is not caught off guard by any situation or circumstance, no matter how hard it may be in your life. And so what is the benefit of this? That, that if I am going through it, if, if I have a harsh person or I have a harsh circumstance where I am a subordinate to somebody that is hard or unkind, here's what it says in verses 19 through 20. For it brings favor. Why? Do you, did you hear this? That if you are under harsh or, or, or harsh circumstances, or, or you are subordinate to a harsh or hard leader, that when you honor that leader, when you submit to that leader, it says it brings favor. And you thought favor came when you sold a big offering in church. <laughs> you thought favor came when you ran around seven times. You, you thought favor came when you had to touch your neighbor 17 times. You thought favor came when you did something, when you did something external. But how about favor from God comes when you submit to those who are in authority? And so it tells us that if we endure grief, it brings favor when we suffer unjustly. Now, this is not saying that if you go and rob a bank and you go to prison, that if you suffer, <laughs> you suffer, that's going to bring favor. No, you rob the bank. You need to sit in jail. But this is saying that if you didn't do nothing, that if you did the right thing, that if you did your best, that if you tried to honor people, that if you tried to honor God, then this brings favor with God if you suffer for him unjustly. So he talks about this idea of grief. And here's what I want you to know about grief. Grieving is hard for us. It is difficult for us. You ever wonder, why is it so hard to grieve? Why is grieving such an uncomfortable thing? It's because we were never intended to grieve in the first place. When Adam and Eve were created, there was not an environment for them to have to grieve. Everything was right. Everything was good. There was no sickness. There was no sadness. There was no death. Adam had a good job in the cool of the day that he enjoyed. He was supposed to work and cultivate. God gave him a wonderful job that he had to work in peace, that he enjoyed, that he didn't have to figure out a work-life balance, if that's actually really a thing, which I don't think it is. But, but Adam had a great situation. And then that nefarious nemesis came into the garden. That old serpent came. And Genesis 3 explains to us the fall of man. And ever since that fall, we've been dealing with grief. But grief feels, feels odd to us because we were never intended to have to grieve over anything in the first place. When God create, made his creation, everything was right and everything was perfect. And so now that we live on the other side of the fall, here's what Peter told us early in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. You suffer grief in various trials that we would grieve in this life. But he's saying this, if you suffer because you are motivated by honoring God in your suffering, if you're suffering because of your 
relationship with God. If you've gone into situations and you said, I'm going to do the right thing because I want to honor God and it didn't result in some favorable circumstances, but actually it, it made things harder for you. He's saying that brings favor. If you are doing the right thing, trying to honor God and you still seem to suffer, count that as favor. That means this is his grace for your life. This is commendable by God. It counts with God. He sees it. He honors it. He appreciates it. And for that, there is a reward not in this life, but there is a reward in the life to come for those of us who endure suffering unjustly for the name and the sake of Jesus Christ. We have an eternal reward in heaven. And so he knew that in all honesty, injustice and suffering would be a part of what we deal with until the Lord comes back. And so here we have it. Peter is talking about suffering. Peter's Christology, 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 what you think about Christ, how we perceive Christ, Peter's Christology was not a, a Christology of naming and claim it. His the, theology wasn't one of speaking things into existence. Peter's theology was a theology of suffering. Wow. Here's what he says. Verse 21. Here's what Peter says. You don't have to believe me. Don't take my word for it. Here's what he says in verse 21. For you are called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. So Jesus is our model and our exam, an example for suffering. When we walk the way of Jesus, we are guaranteed to suffer in this life. Peter says we were called to it. It is a calling. It is a, it is a thing that we've been chosen for, that we would follow after Jesus. The means to salvation is through suffering. We are transformed as we live like Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit while we suffer. And so Jesus is our example and we pattern ourselves after Jesus like a child is trying to learn how to write his alphabets over a pattern. And so we are to trace our lives over the life of Jesus so that we can be more like him. And this is what real Christian discipleship looks like. For we cannot step into the footsteps of Jesus and then head off in some other direction. But the way of Jesus the footsteps of Jesus leads to the cross. It leads to the grave and then it leads to glory. And so if you are following Jesus, I hate to be the, bad, the bearer of bad news. In this life, you will go through stuff. And so the crux of Peter's argument in this passage in verses 22 through 23 is this. He wants to tell us how to suffer well, that there is a way to suffer. And here's what he says in verses 22 through 23. He says, he did not commit sin, talking about Jesus, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That Jesus, when he was suffering, that he had to deal with verbal slander from the same people that he would die for. That on his way to the cross, the same people that he was about to give his life for were insulting him and hurling insults at him. He was giving his life for these people and they were hurling insults at him. And he did not sin in the least bit. And so for Peter, this is a good reminder that we as believers will oftentimes be a receiving on the receiving end of abusive speech and insults, whether we deserve it or not. But here's what it says that Jesus did. When he was insulted, he didn't turn. He did not insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Following in Jesus steps through trying situations means not responding in kind to the accusers by using slander, 
deceit or making threats the same way they do to you. I want to say this to you. You don't have to respond to every time somebody insults you. Every slick comment isn't worth you responding to. Every disrespectful text ain't worth a reply. Anything that starts with, anytime somebody texts you and it starts with, first of all, that's your cue to go ahead and delete it. If it starts with first of all, you know that ain't nothing good coming after that. If you are texting somebody and you start with first of all, you probably need to hold on to that text, sleep on it, and not send it tomorrow. If it starts with first of all, it ain't no good. And so, so when, when we see these types of things, we have to be mindful that we ain't responding the way that people have treated us. Every email ain't worth a reply. Every negative comment left under a social media post isn't worth a response when it ain't about nothing. And so I want to thank the Archbishop of Toronto, Canada, by the name of Aubrey Graham, because he once said that they turned from trigger fingers to Twitter fingers. And I'm telling you today that you don't have to respond to all of the people that got Twitter fingers. And so we look at Jesus. Jesus is being insulted. He's being falsely accused. But the Bible doesn't say nothing about Jesus threatening to pull up. Jesus don't say nothing about pulling up on nobody. Jesus doesn't threaten to let them catch these holy hands. He, he let God deal with all the shame and all the slander and all the nonsense. And in some situations, don't miss this. Silence is the best response. Sometimes we have to suffer in silence. And this silence ain't some passive resignation that you don't care, but it's just a resignation that says, I got confidence in God that he is a better vindicator than I am, that I don't have to defend myself over every accusation. You don't have to defend yourself every time somebody says something sideways to you. Sometimes you just got to let God deal with the nonsense. And so Jesus' silence reveals his confidence in God. And sometimes when you respond to people's foolishness, what you're saying is, I don't trust God to make this situation right. But I want to declare today that you don't got to respond, that Jesus can take care of the nonsense better than you ever could. God is good at that. So what should my response be? Am I supposed to just let them talk about me? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 through 45, but I tell you, love your enemies. Oh, this is the hard part. Oh, Jesus, help me. Pray for those who persecute you. Oh, Jesus. I need you. I need you this morning. God, help me. It says pray for those who persecute you so, so that you may be children of your father. But the good thing about God is he doesn't just make a command and tell us to do it. God helps us through it. The Holy Spirit helps us to get down on our knees and say, Lord, I don't want to do this. They talking crazy. They talking nonsense. I want to pull up. But Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Lord, Lord bless my enemies. Lord, bless those who are falsely accusing me. God, bless those who are insulting me. God, bless those who are sending crazy texts. God, bless all the Twitter fingers across the land. God, bless them. So here's what it tells us that Jesus did in verse 23. It said that he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Man, he entrusted himself to the one who who judges justly. It means that Jesus literally handed over the situation 
He handed it over to God. He handed his whole life over to God. He let every dimension of his life go and said, God, you take care of it. You take care of my enemies however you see fit. Just because you suffer unjustly doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Sometimes suffering unjustly is the greatest sign that God is actually with you. God accomplished salvation through an injustice. Jesus was innocent. And he still was condemned like a criminal. And so we are securing God because Jesus has suffered the ultimate injustice. And yet he still lives and we will too. And so that's Peter's theology. But Peter's theology has some gospel implications for us. It has some implications for us. And so here's what it means. We can trust God and not do evil for evil because God has freed us from responding like those that don't know God. He's freed us from responding like those that don't know God. When a person sins against us or treats us unfairly or injustice is carried out, we do not have to pursue vengeance by ungodly means. Jesus has set us free from that. That is the good news. Verses 24 through 25 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for unrighteous for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray. But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For everybody that feels like you've been enslaved, somebody's at home right now under stay at home orders and you feel like. You are in slavery. And the crazy thing is, people don't even know it. You live, <laughs> you live with somebody who you feel like is a slave master. And I want to tell you today that you are free in Jesus. And that if anybody can feel your pain, if anybody can relate to you, it is the suffering servant. It is Jesus. It is the suffering servant who died an unjust death. He died a slave's death on a Roman cross under Roman law. And so he was executed unjustly as a criminal. But his death for our sins means that now we can live righteously even when we suffer for Jesus' sake. And so... He refers to Isaiah 53. He says, by his wounds, we have been healed. I love that. I love that. And sometimes, most times, we use that as a prescription for physical healing. I won't deny you that, but I will tell you this. The first thing that that means, and I'm almost done. When it says by his wounds, we're healed, it means that by his fatal wounds on the cross, that he has healed not our physical wounds, but our spiritual wounds. Let me tell you this. Spiritual wounds are far greater than physical wounds. And so Jesus comes and takes on all of the suffering and abuse that we take on. And he showed us how to do it. But he's not just our example. He is the atonement for our sins and his blood that was shed for our sins set us free that by his resurrection, his being raised to life, it meant that you and I live with him. So we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to responding to a boss that we don't like, to a spouse that treats us unfairly to a parent that treats us unjustly. We're not obligated to respond the way that they treat us. 
But because we have been free in Christ, we can love those who treat us like they hate us. And so the, 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 the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus died for my sins, but the resurrection ensured that we were made alive with Christ and we are empowered by the spirit that lives on the inside of us, that, that we can live the way of Christ. This is why having a Christian worldview is so great to have because Christ didn't suffer for himself. Your suffering isn't purposeless. Christ's suffering wasn't purposeless, but he suffered for the benefit of others. His suffering ended our slavery to sin. Wow. So his suffering brought our spiritual freedom. So what does that look like for us? Dare I say that there is purpose in your pain. There's purpose in your pain. There's purpose in your pain today. And what I mean by that is this. It is twofold. Our suffering in an unjust world whether it be from an employer, a leader, a spouse, a parent, a family member, whoever it is, a friend, our unjust suffering serves a purpose that when we suffer and we respond the way Christ responds, it has evangelistic value. That sometimes we have to suffer in silence. I'm not saying if something happened to you in your life that you shouldn't say anything. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when you find yourself in hostile environments with a need to defend yourself or sling mud like people are slinging mud to you, you ain't got to say a word. And at some point, at some point by the power of God, people will realize and see, man, they didn't respond the way I responded. It has evangelistic value because the purpose of our suffering is twofold. First, it is so that we can bring others into the fold. That, that you enduring for Christ's sake has meaning to it. That, that in your silence you are following the way of Jesus. That sometimes the people that you help the most will be the people that will throw you under the bus. But don't fret. Because you and I are sinners. Jesus never sinned and they still turned on him. That should set you free. So it has evangelistic value that sometimes somebody might say, you know what? I'm mean and horrible to them. I said stuff I shouldn't have said to them and they still prayed for me. That they, they, they still blessed me. That they still spoke life into me. They, they didn't sit and fight with me. It has evangelistic value. And finally, and most importantly, is that our suffering ultimately brings glory to God. That he is pleased when we endure for his sake. And so to everybody that is going through or have ever gone through, you may not have gone through American chattel slavery where you were not even treated like a human. You may have gone through a lesser version, but I want to level with your pain and tell you that Jesus is a God that feels what you feel. That he suffered the greatest injustice in human history. That he took on the sin of humanity on the cross and he did nothing wrong. 
And so because of Jesus and his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven and we've been made free. So your situation may not change after today, after today. But I want to tell you that if you are in Christ, your spirit can be free. That there is a heaven that is to come. That there will be no more slavery. There will be no more bondage of any kind. That there will be a day when everything that is wrong will be made right. That we will be made whole. And so I want to encourage you today that there is purpose in your pain. And sometimes we have to suffer in silence. Number one, for the sake of others, so they may see Jesus through your suffering. And secondly, because your suffering brings glory to God. Suffering in silence. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today. Oh, we thank you, God, that your grace is sufficient. We thank you that you are an amazing God, that you are an awesome God. I pray for every person who is listening today that is in pain, that is suffering in some sort of silence, that a stay-at-home order may have been a sentence to prison with a horrible prison guard. I, I want to pray for everyone who, when this is over, has to go back to an unfair boss. I, I want to pray for you and let you know that, that if you find yourself in a situation and you can't change it, that there is a way to respond to your situation. And so, Father, I pray that you would give your people strength and power in these days, in this time. That, Lord, your grace is sufficient. And so, Father, we, we honor you. We glorify you today. And we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Hey, if you've watched us today and you may have had some stumbling blocks about Christianity or you just may have been hesitant to give uh, or surrender, I should say, your life to Christ because of things that you've heard about Christianity or the Bible. Maybe slavery was a stumbling block, and that's fair. But what do you do when the stumbling blocks have been remo removed? Here's the thing, that no matter how much you grapple with or have trouble with the Bible, you still won't be able to avoid God. He's not going anywhere. And so he can be a rock that you lean on, or he can be a rock that you get trampled by. So today I want to extend an invitation to surrender to Jesus. And what that looks like is um, that you realize that, that we're all sinners, saved, saved by grace. Romans 3.23 says uh, we, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we, we are sinners, but Christ came to set us free. And, and because of Jesus and by trusting in his finished work on the cross and through his resurrection and his ascension, he sits at the right hand of the Father. and He rules and reigns supreme. When you put your trust in the finished work of Jesus, you, you too can have eternal life. And so I want to extend that to you today that maybe you still have questions. You still have questions, but honestly, there's some stuff that we will not know because some things are for God to understand, but there are certain things that we can know, we can't understand. But either way, we have to make sure that we take the provision that God has offered us by way of his son for our eternal souls. And so I want to extend that to you today. If you're joining us online for the first time or if you've seen us a couple weeks and you are intrigued, but you just haven't trusted, I want to extend that invitation to you. You can just click on the button and says, I want to give my life to Christ. And one of our leaders will respond to you in the chat. It'll be personal. It'll be private. But we want to pray for you. We want to follow up with you. It doesn't matter where you are, if you're in Florida, if you're in Georgia, if you, wherever you are in the world and you're watching us, we, we want to be a church for you. We want to extend ourselves to you. And so we just 
want to pray for you today. So, Father, we thank you today for our online audience. We thank you that we've been able to to gather today. And, Lord, we praise you, Father. We pray that you would keep us in perfect peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be blessed. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.